It is good uh, to be with you this morning, and it is good, uh, a privilege to open God's Word um, together. I do not take uh, this lightly as a privilege, and so um, let me pray as we get started. Ask for God's help uh, for all of us as we hear from Him. Let's pray together. Father, those, those words we just sung, we're just saying um, that we, we boast in nothing uh, but Jesus Christ, and we come here this morning to, to worship you as a good father. Um, God, the, frankly, that's why we gather. We have good news, uh, and, and we have a good father who has welcomed us uh, into um, a, a beautiful family. And so thank you for um, this church, for these people, I pray. Uh, as we hear collectively from you this morning, that where I speak my own words, I pray those would fall away quickly and be forgotten. But where I do, in fact, speak your word after you, God, I pray that your spirit would uh, work to teach and convict, encourage, confront all those things that we know we need from you. I pray that you would do it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure if you just caught it, but the passage that Kristen just read for us was written by... King Nebuchadnezzar, um, our, our demented ruler from the past several weeks, uh, he wrote these pa- this page of scripture. This is a pagan king uh, wrote these words, which again, like we said um, a couple weeks ago, if God can use King Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to be okay, right? Um, so help us. And he uses King Nebuchadnezzar to speak here. And, and let me refresh your memory on who uh, this king is. Um, he is a bad he is a bad man, right? He is obsessed with um, at least threatening to tear people limb from limb. That's part one of his MOs. Uh, he has thrown Daniel's friends into the fiery furnace, albeit unsuccessfully, uh, but he, he's not above that. Uh, and there's no, no one more powerful in all the world. If, if, there is, uh, if there was a region of the known world that he knew about, he was ruler over it. He could point to every every. A thing in the world, every, every region of the world, every person of the world, and say, mine, 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 I am ruler over that. But this morning, we come to a, to a text. We come to a passage where the refrain changes. He, he no longer says, mine, 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 but he says, no, his, his power, his kingdom, his dominion, not mine, but, but the most high God, his. And the question right off the top for us is how did we get here? How do we get to this place in chapter 4? What would compel King Nebuchadnezzar to write a letter like this to his empire? Downplaying his, his authority in the kingdom and instead pointing to the Most High God. Now, sure, we've seen King Nebuchadnezzar admit God's power when, when, he, uh, when he couldn't do anything else, right? Um, There's absolutely no denying it. He has even worshipped this God, and he has threatened people who wouldn't worship this God. He's made some baby steps towards God, and I will will grant that, but I'm not sure I would use, I would have at the end of chapter 3 even, used the words humble and neb in the same sentence. But that's exactly where we are in the story this morning. So we'll, we'll ask the question, what would it take to humble the most powerful person in the world. How would such an arrogant person be brought to his knees or even worse? And that's what we'll see unfold this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to, to Daniel chapter 4. Um, we're going to pick up the story in verse 4. 
And we are decades away from the end of chapter three. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is coasting into his retirement. Um, the text says he was at ease in his house, prospering in his palace. And here's, I, I, I was tempted to do this. I'm afraid you might be underplaying uh, in your mind just how, just, just what scene we're looking at here. So let me help. Remember, there, is, there isn't a square inch of the universe, that, or the universe, that's a, that's, that might be overstating it a touch. Uh, there isn't a, a square inch of the known world over which this man doesn't rule. And we don't know power, we don't know any power like that in our world today. I mean, we, there are powerful people, successful people, fame and fortune uh, that we can see in our world today, but no one like this. In fact, only a handful of people who have walked, have walked this planet with this kind of power. Uh, he, he built one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I think I have a picture of it, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's not like a photograph, but it's someone's depiction of the hanging gardens, right? No one, no one has the kind of power that this king wields. He is crushing it as a dictator, I mean, nailing it. And life, life couldn't, couldn't be going any better for King Nebuchadnezzar. And then it happened again. Another unexpected glimpse into the future in the middle of the night that shakes him to the core. Another bad dream. This guy needs, I mean, I thought, this guy really needs some Ambien or something. Like, this guy needs some help sleeping because he's got it bad, right? But this is the most powerful man alive at the end of his reign with literally nothing in the world to worry about. He is shaken to the core by another nightmare, another bad dream. And with good reason. It's not good news. Uh, he can feel it. He calls in his dream team again, right, to come uh, take, to, to tell, the, tell him what it means. Same drill as before and just like before with no luck. Um, and so he calls in Daniel because he knows, he knows Daniel can help, right? For starters, he has been doing this for decades now. Daniel is the chief of this dream team. Uh, this is exactly what he, what he was doing when we saw him last in the story, but he's not a teenager anymore, right? He's probably in his 50s. Uh, and, and, there, and there's more to it, though, than just his experience, right? Look at verse 9, chapter 4, verse 9. These are King Nebuchadnezzar's words. Again, right? O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for, for, for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Right? He knows that there's the spirit of the holy gods is within him. He knows that he can help because Daniel's God is with him. And then he gets right to the dream, verse 10. He says, I, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So far, so good, right? Um, this is an amazing picture. A tree that, could, that gave shelter to all the animals, that, that fed all people, whose leaves and, and fruit provide for all. And I, I've been to Sequoia National Park. I've seen uh, some of the largest trees in the world. General Sherman is, is the largest single-stem tree in the world. And it is, uh, it is amazing to take in, and yet... It is nothing compared to what King Nebuchadnezzar sees in the stream. Except, of course, that it is still standing. It is still standing tall today. Um, so what, it's what happens next, right, in the dream that rattles King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13 and following, he says, 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, a messenger came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its root in the, in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him, speaking of the stump, let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. That's the part that makes him jolt up in the middle of the night. Because really, you got to think, I mean, even though he's calling in his dream team and he, he needs Daniel to come tell him what this means, right? You got to, I mean, he's not a, he's not a, he's not an idiot. He had to know, at least in part, what's going on in this dream. All right, we haven't even gotten to the interpretation yet. And, and I'm sure you've got a hunch, right? It's, it's not going to be good for King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knows the meaning, of course. Uh, that's not surprising, but his reaction actually his reaction is a little bit surprising. The text says that Daniel is rattled here too. It says he's dismayed for a while, even to the point of wishing that this were not true of King Nebuchadnezzar and were actually true of his enemies. Now, maybe, again, King Nebuchadnezzar is the author here. Maybe he's just writing himself into a positive light. Like, see, even Daniel was sad for me. Or we don't really know, right? Maybe Daniel has truly grown fond of this king over the years. The text doesn't really say, but Daniel clearly doesn't want this to be true of the king. But it is, it is true, and the, and the meaning is simple, right? He says, it's you, O king. You are the great and the mighty tree. Your greatness reaches to the heavens and can be seen from every point on earth, which means you're also going to fall. By decree of the Most High, my God, and it's going to be ugly, O king. You're going to lose everything you've achieved, everything you've built. You're going to lose your mind, your humanity, your dignity. It will be a tragic fall. And you'll be this way until you recognize, O king, until you acknowledge the Most High that he's in control, that your kingdom is like a mere stump compared to his. And Daniel, desperate on, on the king's behalf, he pleads with the king. He says, it doesn't have to be this way, O king. You can break, break off your sins, is what it says in the text. He says, repent. You can turn. You know, this doesn't have to be true of you. Break off your sins before God breaks you. But despite Daniel's plea, and it's, it's still kind of a head-scratching plea, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of time that's... that's passed from the end of chapter 3 to now. Who knows why? We can only speculate why Daniel feels this way towards the king. But despite his plea, the king doesn't change. In fact, it's almost like he forgets or he doesn't care. Or like he can't imagine any god could, could defeat a powerful king like him. Right? Look, Daniel, I understand. Thanks for your concern. But who does your god think he is? Like this is me we're talking about. 
And for a year, I mean, the text says 12 months later, a year goes by and everything's fine. In fact, it's better than fine, right? Retirement is in full swing for King Neb. He couldn't be happier even if his sleep is kind of eludes him sometimes. And the text says we, we can see him, he walks on the roof of his palace, he surveys his city, this, these beautiful gardens that he's built, his power, his wealth, his glory, his comfort. And he admits to himself, never has anyone ever been so great. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's amazing to read that. But, I mean, I mean he's, that's, isn't that, is that not true? He's lost in a daydream about his own greatness. And the text says before, before he can even stop pontificating about his might and his majesty, God cuts him off. He says, I'm going to stop you right there, King Neb. Verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. It's time. It's time, Nebuchadnezzar. All those terrible things that I told you were going to happen, it's time. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to be like an animal, hair and long talons and everything grazing like a cow in the field. Prepare yourself to live in the wild like the beast that you have become. Until, verse 32 says, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Now, let's step out of the story for a moment um, and just examine what's happening here. Uh, because we're talking about something so fundamental to what it means to be human, so universal to our experience in this world, and so devastating if not dealt head on. We're talking about pride, the, ori the original sin, the sin that says, I don't need God. I don't need his design for life. I don't need his rules. I don't need his help. Pride, which says, I control my own life. I'm in the driver's seat. And there's a constant focus on self, this, this turning inward, this navel gazing, right, this, that we, we can't see past our own selves. And it's King Neb's pride that leads him to this tragic fall from power and from glory and from humanity, from what it means to be human. And pride, one of the things I want, to see, want us to see this morning is pride is deceptive. The more we feed our pride, the more we pontificate, like, I mean, we may not do that. We don't use the words like majesty and the might of my glory. But the more we, we review our, our accomplishments in the world and just just bask in how great we are, the less we are able to see it in ourselves. It keeps us really from seeing life and the world the way it really is. Pride is the root of both arrogance, like we see here on display in the story, and, you know, of this kind of looking in the mirror and saying, I'm the best and the baddest, people love me. It's both arrogance and it's self-pity. We say, no, nobody could ever love me. It's the root of both. It's a focus on self. Pride gets the very nature of things backwards, where we blame God for our troubles and we take credit for 
the good things that are in our life. And looks around and says, look at my house. That's all my hard work. Look at my, this promotion I just got. I deserve that. Right? Look at this kingdom that, is a, that I've built up around me. I deserve, uh, this is all me. But just almost as an aside, what if, what if I had been born, I mean, I'm speaking of myself here. What if I had been born in a different country or a different century? Or if I hadn't been born to my parents or given the opportunities I was given or I spoke a different language or uh, my skin was a different color or I grew up diff- worshiping a different God? I had zero control over any of those things. And the same is actually true for all of us here. We had no control over any of those things. But our pride looks at all of it and says, I did that. I earned that. Maybe God helped, but I mean, come on. Come on. Pride is deceptive, and it's also dehumanizing. The more pride you have in your heart, the more pride I have in my heart, the less human we are. It turns us into animals. And King Nebuchadnezzar is an extreme example here in this story. But the biblical witness is clear about our design as humans. To be human is to be, above all, a created being, a creature with a creator upon whom we are dependent for everything. But pride rejects that and and really, at the end of the day, removes the foundation of our own humanity, which is why I think it's so uh, appalling deep inside of us when we see pride on display we know we weren't meant to live like that. Third, pride is destructive. It's destructive. It is silent in many ways, but it is deadly and will destroy you. And my hunch is, along with me, nobody walked into this room this morning thinking that the most dangerous thing in their life was their pride. I mean, there are plenty of other sins that we're quick to recognize as fatal. Sexual sins, uh, for sure. Addictions of every kind, right? Greed and envy, if we're, re- like if we're really being honest. But pride is hard to see in yourself. It's, like, it's kind of like bad breath, right? I mean, you, can, you know when someone else has bad breath. But you may not know your own, right? You get, other people have to tell you, like, yeah, tic-tac. If, if only we had a tic-tac for our pride, I guess. Actually, we'll get to that. It's called humility. Um, <laughs> C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Simple enough. But pride will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. It will destroy your business, your career, my ministry, our nation. Because it runs counter to the very order of things, the very way that God set creation up it runs counter to that. It says, I don't need him. When point of fact, we do absolutely need him for everything. But let's get back to our story. Even if it gets uglier and uglier by the minute, we're going to go back uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 33 says, immediately, immediately the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers it must, be, must have been a sight. And his nails were like bird's claws. So no time is wasted, right? One moment he is daydreaming about his greatness. And the next he is out of his mind and he is driven from among people 
to go graze in a field like an animal. And of course, this is, this is precisely how God said it would happen a year ago. And the text says literally that he spent, he was in the field for seven times, seven periods. Uh, that could be months, it could be years. I think it's years. That's a little unclear in the text. But he's, it's clear, he's out there for, it's long enough to be eating grass as a wild beast. God humiliates him. The most humble or the most proud, arrogant man, powerful man on the planet, like, like a divine lumberjack, God cuts him down to size. And the question that's been rattling around for me this, the last few days in particular is, what will he do with my pride? Or yours? Because don't think there's not pride in your life. Like we said, it, 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 works, its well, it works itself out differently. But and it may not be at King Nebuchadnezzar's level, but it's there, right? Pride thinks that we are ultimately in control. And I don't know about you, but there are spaces in my life where I, I think I am in the driver's seat, and I'm a good driver, thanks. But anything good I have is from God, right? We've already, we've already covered that. And in, in his providence, he can take it away. What if he did? Because he can and he will. In his severe mercy, God will, he will cut you. Sometimes when you least expect it, sometimes when you think life is going just as well as it could, when you're coasting into retirement, as it were, he will cut us down because God is severe. He is not playing around. The stakes are too high. And like a skillful surgeon with a knife, he, he, will make, he is not afraid to make the cut. Sometimes deep cuts that will, that will most definitely be painful. But that's because he will do whatever it takes to remove the tumor, to remove the, the cancer of pride that is vicious and deep in every one of us. And humility is the antidote to pride. Being humbled. God will humble us, sometimes in severe ways. Not so that we'll think less of ourselves. That's not, that's not true humility. That's self-pity that is actually rooted in pride. But that we will think of ourselves less. <laughs> that's exactly what we need. That was the life that we were made to live. And God, he is severe. That is true but he is also merciful. His cuts are purposeful and for our good. And I'm not saying that everything bad in our, that, that may happen to us, we should see God as the divine lumberjack with his ax right there ready to get us, ready to cut us down. Right? We, we, know, we live in a broken world where terrible things happen. It's not always our pride. And yet, it would be very prideful indeed to not at least ask, God, is there something that, you're, that you want me to learn here? Are you disciplining me like a good father? I mean, like we just sung over and over again, that God, he is a good father who disciplines his children. What do I need to learn from you here? Do I need to be humbled? And if so, would you please humble me? Our posture ought to be the opposite of, of King Nebuchadnezzar in our story. 
where he runs away from God, and yet here we have an opportunity to humble, humble ourselves before God. Now, he works on King Neb until he finally acknowledges that God is king. And he will do the same for us because we need this life lived without control. It is the life for which you and I were made. But let's, let's jump right back into our story one more time. Where we left, we left Neb at rock bottom. <laughs> Nowhere to go but up, right, for him. Look at verse 34. It says, at the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So the king here at the end of our story finally learns humility. And it's interesting here that his humility comes with the acknowledgement of God. His reason returns. True reason starts from a, a position of humble faith. But he continues. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Things actually work out for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this is an incredible admission that is rooted in humility because he has, been, he has been confronted by a God who will go to great lengths to cut us down. He actually gets his kingdom back. Look at, but more importantly, look at verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So it's God's severe mercy that leads him to repentance. Not necessarily his power, we've seen that on display. But God mercifully leads him to repentance. And many think this is evidence of Neb's conversion. I, th- I actually agree. I think, he, I think he's among the people of God. It sure sounds like it here. And this letter is, he's bearing witness. I mean, he sends this out to, to everybody in his empire, which is everybody in the known world. And bears witness to this God. He comes to a place where he can say, I'd rather be humbled by God than exalted by anyone else. I'd rather be cut down to size, I'd rather eat grass like an ox, than have anyone else in this, in this world confer upon me fame and power and glory. I'd rather be humbled by God than exalted by anyone else. And it's my prayer this morning that we can all join King Nebuchadnezzar in that in that refrain, right? The man who once claimed mine, 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 now says, no, it's his. His is the power and the majesty and the kingdom. And we need to see that God can do that. He can do this work. He can remove your pride and replace it with true humility. But I think there's more, actually, that we need to see here, more than just that God can do this in our own hearts and minds, that he can remove our pride and make us humble But today, October 30th of an election year, this is a story of a powerful political leader being humbled by the severe mercy of God. His pride is broken by an almost unbelievable humiliation. But he learns humility. And we've already seen that God's in control of who's in control. 
We've seen that in the last several weeks, and that that ought to lead us to pray. Like Daniel and his friends prayed a couple weeks ago for the, for the welfare of their, of their city. Their welfare is bound up in the welfare of the place where God has put them. Right? We, sh- we should lead, or we should be praying for our leaders. But if this, and if this story shows us anything at all, it shows us that there is, not, there is no leader that is too far gone. Not one. And look, I have read and talked about and mulled over a lot of things regarding our candidates for this upcoming election season. I'm sure many of you have done the same, right? But I don't think I've spent a solid minute praying that God would, that they would be humbled by the mercy of God. Good, Bobby. (laughs) You should probably be preaching this. pleading with God that they would be changed like this. Like, probably because I don't really believe that he can do that. Or I don't care that he would for these people. But the message of this chapter, written by a pagan king centuries ago, is clear and relevant for us today. God cares about even the most wicked, powerful, and arrogant. He is chasing them down with his mercy. He cares about leaders who hold different policy, policy positions than you. Believe that. He cares about them. He loves them. So instead of joining, like I have, frankly, in the mudslinging contest that is our political, uh, cultural moment, we should believe that God can do this and ask him to do this. And look, I'm not saying you have to happily agree with the candidates or vote, vote for, for them, you don't. But you also can't hate them. And on that, on that point, the Bible is crystal clear. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and pray for them. And it's really hard to hate someone when, you've, when you're really praying for their welfare. And I don't mean just like complaining to God about them. I mean really praying for them. And that truth cut me yesterday as I was finishing up this sermon. If I spent half the time praying for our current and future political leaders that I do feeding my hatred of them, I might actually come to love them, care about them, desire to see them flourish. I might despair less and actually place my hope securely in God's kingdom. So we're actually going to practice that this morning. It's how we're going to wrap up uh, text this morning. This, this story is certainly about pride and humility and how it takes root in our lives, but it is, also, it is also timely for us to see that God cares about even the most corrupt and wicked and bankrupt leaders in human history, and he chases them down and humbles them to the point where they point to him and say, no, you are in control. You are sovereign. We're going to pray that they would join with King Nebuchadnezzar who publicly admits God's gracious power in his reign. And there's going to be a a portion of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So it'll be on the screen behind me. And I'll pray along those lines um, in a moment, but... 
actually, as, can you go ahead and put those up, Kathy? Uh, as we just, just spend the next few moments meditating on these words, thinking about what, the ground we've covered in, in God taking this prideful, powerful man and bringing to, him to the place of humility, of true humility. Meditate on these words from the Apostle Paul and pray them for our, our future and current leaders. And then I will close us in prayer as we continue in our time of worship. Let's pray together. First of all, then, I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for... That word, thank you for another story in this amazing book uh, that tells of your powerful reign over even the most powerful in this world, and that you do so, that you, that you reign with compassion and mercy, even if it's severe and painful at times. And we, this morning, we acknowledge our pride before you um, and admit that without your merciful pursuit of us, we would always live only for ourselves. And we admit our, even our political pride this morning and how easy it is to become arrogant or despairing in the midst of an election season. And we pray this morning for those running for office, for our, for our current and future political leaders, particularly those who are running for the office of the presidency. We pray that you would use them for your purposes in this country. And as, as Paul instructs, in your word, we offer these requests on behalf of our current and future leaders that we all might lead a peaceful and quiet life in accordance with your design and good purpose. For we know you, that you desire all to be saved, to know the truth, and to live a life of humble faith. For you are God, you alone. We ask that you would make yourself known to Senator Clinton and to Donald Trump for their good and the good of this country. Be near to them and break them with your mercy and grace. That they would join with King Nebuchadnezzar's witness to your glory, where he writes, how great are your signs, how mighty are your wonders. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen.